Hey, thank you everyone for coming here today. Today's a special day for a couple different reasons. If you don't know me, my name is Al Westerman, and I'm the pastor here at this beautiful church. Today's special for a couple reasons, as I said. One of them is, this week, earlier this week, I celebrated one year here. So it's been a year. Yeah. I celebrated by playing disc golf, which is a great way to, to celebrate, yeah. It's also special, as Daniel made mention, because we're doing a two-weeker on our mission and our vision here as a church. So we're going to get into the mission today. We're going to talk about why we're here, the what of what God is calling us to do, why it's so important. We're, we're going to be getting into that. Classically enough, our mission here is the same thing as the mission of the church in general. We got it from a very, very reliable source. We got it from Jesus. In Matthew 28, Jesus proclaims what is called the Great Commission. One of the reasons why it's great is because this is the last thing that's recorded that he said to his disciples before he ascended into heaven. So these last words are really, really important, and we, the church, have taken them very seriously for the last thousands of years. He said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey all the commands that I have given you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. That's a good mission, eh? That's the mission that Jesus has given us to do. And so the way that we at Auburn Bible Chapel have chosen to articulate this goes as follows. To invite people to know God personally and participate in his plan to rescue the world from sin through his son, Jesus. I want to take four main points out of this, and this is what I want to talk to everyone about today. First thing I see is that it's personal. That we need to know God personally. Second thing I see is that we participate by inviting. That's how we participate. Third is that it's a rescue mission from sin, that's what it's all about. And fourth is that it, all of this happens in Christ alone. Now, Jesus is the rebar. The first point, the last point that we're talking about very well could be the first point. Jesus is, after all, the first and the last. He is the beginning and the end. He is the alpha and the omega. He is the lion and the lamb. He is preeminent in everything. He is in all and he is through all. This is the Jesus that we're proclaiming. This is the Jesus that all of this is about. Let's pray. Father God, God, we thank you for this opportunity that we have to come together to lift high and to make much of the name of Jesus. 
God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the power that is in it. We thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus. God, would you open up our hearts and our minds, including my own, to the message that you have for each of us here today. All this is for you, God. Amen. Again, the first point that I want to bring out is that it's personal. Our mission statement says to invite people to know God personally. Those three words really stood out to me when I read it. To know God personally and participate in his plan to rescue the world from sin through his son, Jesus. I want to acknowledge off the hop that this takes a miracle. We learn this in John 6. John 6, 65, Jesus concedes that no one can come to the Father unless the Father has enabled them, unless the Father draws them. So it takes a miracle for people to behold God. Maybe you know someone like this as well. Some, a dear friend of mine didn't grow up with any Christian background. His parent, neither of his parents had any form of belief. But he himself just always had a sense of the divine. He always had a sense that there was more to this world than just what he could see. Maybe you yourself were in that situation where you just always knew that there was something more to it. This is the Father enabling you. This is the Father drawing you to himself. Some of the ways that we like to explain this is we talk about scales dropping from someone's eyes or we talk about someone's heart being veiled. Paul had this happen. Paul had scales drop from his eyes. Now, the story with Paul is that he was belligerently against the church of Christ. He was very, going very hard against the way, as they called it. He wanted nothing to do. He wanted it destroyed. He wanted to see it done away with. Then he encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus. He encountered the risen Christ. Then, from some time, for some time, he wasn't able to see. Someone prays for him, and the scales from his eyes dropped. And now he is able to see, but for the first time. He's really and properly able to see. He later explains it a little bit differently in 2 Corinthians 3. In 2 Corinthians 3, he's talking about how people's hearts and people's minds are being veiled. And in the context, he's referring to how the new covenant in Christ is vastly superior to the old covenant. So 2 Corinthians 3, and I'm starting in verse 12. I believe it'll be on the screen as well. Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. Check this out. 
but their minds were made dull. For to this day, the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. In 2 Corinthians 4, he mentions how the God of this age, that being the devil, intends to blind people so that they can't properly behold the Christ. So when we pray, when we say, open the eyes of my heart, Lord, I want to see you. That is a very good prayer. That is actually spiritual warfare, taking back the ground that the enemy is trying to take from us. Open the eyes of our heart, Lord. We want to see you. Perhaps my favorite example, and I've mentioned it here before, and I will mention it again, of someone beholding the resurrected Christ happens on the island of Patmos. When John, the disciple of Jesus, gets exiled there, he hears a voice, Revelation 1, starting in verse 12, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Paul's encounter with the resurrected Christ forever changed the trajectory of his life. John's encounter with the resurrected Christ changed the trajectory of the rest of his life. We need to encounter the living Christ. It may not be as dramatic as it was for Paul or for John, but we need to experience him in some way. What's at stake if we don't? What's at stake here if we just go right to the second step of participating in God's plan to save the world from sin through inviting? There's this, my friend Dave was sharing, me, sharing with me a story of a guy who did such a thing. He was told Christians share the gospel, so share the gospel. And he would go to university campuses and he would share the gospel with people. Now there's this one time in particular where he shared the gospel with a young man and said, okay, do you want to accept Jesus into your life? And the young man said, no. 
he looked confused. He said, well, what part of what I shared with you don't you understand? I said, oh, I, I understand it all. I just don't want to be like you. And it's a sad reality because this man was sharing out of a place of perhaps obligation. But the person he was sharing with didn't sense a transformed life. They didn't sense that this guy was the genuine article. They didn't sense the joy and the peace that passes all understanding. And so why would he want to be like that? Jesus has a similar remark when he's talking in Matthew 23, he's talking to the religious officials, and he's talking about the great lengths that they will go to to make a convert, to convert someone to their religion. And if they are even able to, what Jesus says is that you turn them into twice the son of hell that you are. Now, that, those are strong words. Those are discouraging words. We also read very recently in the book of James my brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? The point is that we recreate what we are. The passion that we have, the joy that we have, the fervor that we serve with, what we actually actively participate in. We recreate what we are. This is true by and large. Now, there are always exceptions, but this is true by and large with discipleship, this is true by and large in our family situations. We recreate what we are. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, follow my example even as I follow the example of Christ. It is having an example that is worth following. It is being the genuine article. My favorite story in this comes from the book of Exodus, with Moses. We love Moses. Moses would go to the tent of meeting, and in there he would receive revelation from the Lord. Exodus 33:11 says, the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. Then Moses would return to the camp, but his young aide, Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. What I love about this is that Moses was setting an example. He was setting a beautiful example by spending time with the Lord. And he would spend a lot of time with the Lord and he would hear from him. And he had that line that is just so encouraging to so many of us that he would speak to the Lord as, though man, as a man speaks to his friend. That's so encouraging. Moses would actually participate in that. But then look at what happens after that. Joshua would not leave the tent. Joshua just wanted to stay in the tent of meeting. He wanted to stay in the Lord's presence. He had something modeled to him. And that's what the model that he followed. And I believe that that is what equipped him to be promoted to being the leader of Israel, is that he just wanted to stay in the tent of meeting, and he just wanted to stay with the Lord. 
this can look different for different people. By show of hands, how many of you are familiar with or have heard of the nine spiritual pathways? Oh, this is going to be great for you. So feel free to Google this afterwards because this is, this is, not a, this is a really freeing thing. This is extremely freeing because we all experience God differently. Right? And so this gives us permission to experience the Lord in different ways. There are nine different pathways which we can experience the Lord. So naturalists, I am a naturalist. This is, we experience the Lord in the beauty that he has created. Powerful story of this for me is one time Caleb and I were hiking in Alberta and we came to the end of a cliff and somewhere off in the distance was one of the most beautiful and hidden waterfalls I had ever seen. I experienced the glory and the beauty of the Lord in that moment in an absolutely unforgettable way. There were shouts of joy, there were tears of gratitude. It was absolutely unforgettable. Maybe you too experience the Lord in nature. Servers. Some people experience the Lord by serving other people. There are intellectuals. Maybe you get to express your love for God through your mind. There are contemplatives. And these people adore God and they meditate on God. Activists who work for God by justice. So it's all about justice and proclaiming justice and seeing justice come. Enthusiasts. These are the people that share the gospel and they boldly celebrate and share their faith. Sensate. Worshiping God through the senses. And this can include like candles. This can involve creating art. There's aesthetics, which is solitude and simplicity. Here's the point, is that we don't just have to limit our relationship with God to reading the Bible and prayer. (laughs) Whenever we talk about spending time with God, that's what we do, right? We say, reading the Bible, read your Bible and pray. And those are very good. And I do experience the Lord through reading my Bible, and I do experience the Lord through prayer, though, and I think this is an important addition, not every time. There are times where I read the Bible, and that's it. It was an act of obedience. There are times when I pray, and that's it. It was an act of obedience. But there are other times when I read the Bible with tears in my eyes. There are other times when I pray and I experience God's comfort or God's joy or God's presence. It's not every time, but that does happen. I hope you feel encouraged by that, that there's not just one or two pathways. You can feel free to Google it, nine spiritual pathways. Our mission is to invite people to know God personally and participate in his plan to rescue the world from sin through his son, Jesus. 
what I get from this is that we participate by inviting. There are three passages that we're going to look at that I think they all fit together very well. The first one is the scripture that Paul read for us a little while ago. I wonder if when he was reading that, you were wondering to yourself, what is this about? What is, what is this in connection to? I came across this a couple years ago, and to me, this is about evangelism. This is about spreading the word of God. And to me, it's one of the most interesting and illuminating passages on evangelism. It's found in Isaiah 28. Listen, and starting in verse 23. Listen and hear my voice. Pay attention and hear what I say. That's, that's a key for the rest of what I'm about to read. It's about paying attention to what God is laying on your heart. When a farmer plows for planting, does he plow continually? Does he keep on breaking up and working the soil? When he has, when he has leveled the surface, does he not sow caraway and scatter cumin? What's the point? This, this was me years ago, by the way. It's about plowing continually, trying to get the soil ready. This is relational evangelism with an emphasis on relationship and a minimization of evangelism. It's always trying to prepare the person. It's doing good deeds. It's trying to live a good life in front of those people. But you never actually share the word. There's a really interesting quote. You've probably heard it. It says, preach, it's attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. He says, preach Christ always, use words when necessary. Now, we don't know if St. Francis actually said that. St. Francis has also been attributed to bringing thousands of people to the Lord. So I'm going to believe that he did use words. But when they talk about plowing continually, this is just trying to prepare for the seed to come in, but you're too afraid of the rejection that might come, so you never actually sow the seed. Does he not sow caraway and scatter cumin? Does he not plant wheat in its place, barley in its plot, and spelt in its field? Here we go again. His God instructs him and teaches him the right way. What's the point? The point is that everyone's different. We're all different. We receive the word of God differently. Some people want to hear about God's justice. Some people want to hear about God's mercy. Some people are intellectual. Some people are sensing. Some people are servers. We're all different, and we receive the word of God differently. His God instructs him and teaches him the right way. Caraway is not threshed with a sledge, nor is a wheel of a cart rolled over cumin. Caraway is beaten in with a rod and cumin with a stick. Grain must be ground to make bread, so one does not go on threshing it forever. The wheels of a threshing cart may be rolled over it, but one does not use horses to grind grain. This also comes from the Lord, whose plan is wonderful, whose wisdom is magnificent. We all come to that decision differently as well. This is the harvest, the harvesting decision of giving your life to Jesus. 
to some people, it's that they hear a word of truth and it just resonates with them so uh, deeply. They're intellectual in that way. Some people maybe see someone get healed or they witness God at work in their finances or whatever it might be. There are all these different ways and all of this comes from the Lord Almighty whose plan is wonderful, whose wisdom is magnificent. So in these contexts of sharing your faith, always be relying on God. A similar passage is found in Matthew 13, a popular parable called the parable of the sower. Matthew 13, verse 2. Such large crowds gathered around him, Jesus that is, that he got into a boat and sat in it, while all the people stood on the shore. Then he told them many things in parables, saying, a farmer went out to sow his seed, and he As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil, where it produced a crop a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. Whoever has ears, let them hear. I have two points I want to draw out of this. We've probably heard some sermons on this before, if you've been in church for any length of time. But I have two things that I want to pull out of this. One of them is encouraging, and the other one is convicting. What do you guys want to hear first? Encouraging? Okay. This is what I find extremely encouraging about this. With each of the soil types, the demise that happens, of the first three that is, the demise that happens is preventable. How so? Well, what if farmhands are present? What if farmhands, people, the church, are there to scare away the birds. That would be good. Then the seeds can actually germinate. And then if they do and there's not enough soil, well, what happens if the farmhands come around and they provide context, sharing their own story with the seed that, trying to, that is trying to germinate? The soil can be the context which allows the seeds to grow. And the thorns, the worries of this world and the deceitfulness of wealth. What if there are farmhands present to pull those weeds out, to direct the person when they start going awry? All three of the soil, the soil types that don't work are preventable when the church is at its best. When the person who receives Christ has community come around them and love on them. The convicting part, the sad part is the third soil type. Third soil type gets choked out by the worries of this world and the deceitfulness of wealth. But here's what's interesting it doesn't actually die. The seed, the plant that grew up, doesn't actually die. 
it grows up and it bears no fruit. I don't say what I'm about to say joyfully. I say it with a heavy heart. I believe the church globally is pretty well full of the third soil type, of those who have experienced Jesus, have received him, but he's not necessarily Lord of their life. They've been duped by the worries of this world and the deceitfulness of wealth. It becomes their focus. And they don't bear any fruit. The third connecting scripture comes from 1 Corinthians 3, and it's verses 4 through 9. For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? After all, what, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. That's a very important verse, I'm gonna read it again. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. We participate by inviting, and if we can add context to someone's life, That's helping it. God is the one that makes the seeds grow. He's the one that makes it turn into something beautiful. We can be active participants in it in whatever context that looks like, whatever watering a seed looks like to you. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor for we are co-workers in God's service you are God's field and God's building our mission statement says to invite people to know God personally and participate in his plan to rescue the world from sin through his son Jesus rescue the world from sin. So that is the third thing that we're going to be focusing on. What is sin? Sin is oftentimes defined as missing the mark. And there's a story in the book of Judges where there were 700 select troops who were each left-handed, each of whom could sling a stone at a hair and not sin and not miss. Really interesting there. What is the result of the sinful world that we're in? There are many things. We are living in a culture that has progressively walked away from God and from Christian values. And we see brokenness in homes. We see abuse, 
we see divorce like never before. We see this in school, the school system moving as far away from Christian values as they can, teaching things that are outright contrary to the values on which we built this country, proclaiming and even celebrating lies on identity and so many other things. We see deceit and brokenness in the media. We see it in people all around us. God's goal, God's plan, is to save the world from sin. Now, I want to try to clarify the definition of sin because I don't feel like it's complete. We define sin as missing the mark. I want to define it as not hitting the mark. The difference is very important because if sinning is missing the mark, then if we look at this as an archery term, then why shoot any arrows? Because if you're going to miss, then you're going to sin. But what if the mark was actually, what if the goal, the plan, was actually to hit the mark? And that's when we're winning. That's when we're experiencing God's best. Is the absence of bad good? Said a different way. Someone may have been taken off the road to destruction. Jesus talks about the wide way that leads to destruction in Matthew 7. But there's a a small path. It's the harder way. It is the path of righteousness that we can choose. So you may be off the road to destruction, the highway to destruction that the world may be on, but are you actually and actively making progress in, on the road, on the path, rather, to righteousness? I love when Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty eight, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble of heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The solution to the sin problem doesn't actually come by avoiding. It comes by embracing Jesus Christ. And that's what he saves us from. He saves us from the penalty of sin. Everyone falls short of God's glorious standard. But in Christ, there is redemption and freedom. Our final point is that all of this is found in Christ alone. Our mission statement says to invite people to know God personally and participate in his plan to rescue this world from sin through his son, Jesus. 
Jesus is the rebar. Jesus is the foundation. Everything is built upon him, and he holds everything together. When we're talking about knowing God personally, the text that we were reading earlier in 2 Corinthians 3 continues, and it's so good. But their minds were made dull. For to this day, the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed. Because only in Christ is it taken away. This sounds familiar, doesn't it? Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. Here we go. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is spirit. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is spirit, who is the spirit. And this is continued in chapter four, verses three and four. I love this. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. When we know Christ personally, we are set free. Verse 17. And we are continually transformed into his image. Verse 18. We become genuine articles. We do have opposition. The God of this age, the devil, is trying to blind the minds of unbelievers. And you better believe he's going to try to blind you as well. You better believe he's going to try to trick you with the deceitfulness of wealth and the worries of this world. But God has so much better for you. We participate by inviting, and we were reading 1 Corinthians 3 as well. This was when he was saying one waters, another plants a seed, but God makes it grow. That scripture continues as well, and it's so good. For we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. But... Each one should build with care. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. Is this a concept that's new to Paul? Is this something that Paul is thinking of for the first time? Or did he get it from somewhere else? This concept of Jesus being the rebar, this concept of Jesus being the foundation, is this strictly a New Testament concept? Well, actually, back in Isaiah 28, this is what the Lord, the sovereign Lord says. Look, I am placing a foundation stone in Jerusalem, a firm and tested stone. It is a precious cornerstone that is safe to build on. Whoever believes in him 
will not be disappointed, will not be put to shame, will not be shaken, depending on the translation. In Jesus Christ, the save, saving from sin is only possible in him. And we experience God's best, not simply by avoiding sin, but it is through walking and being with Jesus. If we want to hit the mark, we got we to gotta take out those arrows. We may miss sometimes, but he knows our heart. He'll teach us. He'll instruct us. Matthew 28, 11, 28 again says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. It is in coming to him. In all of this, it is sola dia gloria. It is all the glory to God. It is understanding that it is always, only and all for Jesus. This is the Great Commission, and this is the mission of Auburn Bible Chapel. Let's pray. Holy God, we thank you for this mission, this mission that you have given us. We thank you for the promise that you gave. Surely you are with us always to the very end of the age. And all God's people said,